on this episode of Benelli's The Foul Life, Chad Belding is turning back the hands of time and getting a waterfowl history lesson from a true outdoor legend. My good friend Yancey Forrest Knowles is back. Yancey Forrest Knowles is in the Foul Life studio, and he's the author of the incredible book, Pacific Flyway, Historic Waterfowling Images. You know, this is a 50-year effort, a 55,000-mile effort in collecting these photographs. And the thing that makes them so unique is the fact that 90% of these photographs have never been seen by the waterfowl community. 90% have never been seen. Never been seen by the waterfowling community. Unless they visit one of these museums themselves. Exactly. A special thanks to our partners, California Waterfowl and Safari Club International, for defending the freedom to hunt and supporting wildlife conservation. Now, here's Chad Belding and Yancey Forrest Knowles. What's up, everybody? We're back. The Fowl Life Podcast. I hope you all been enjoying it. Had some pretty cool guests the last couple of weeks. Kyle Broussard from Gator Tail in Cajun Country, Louisiana. Jason Nash and Brian Kelvington, our friends from Federal Premium Black Cloud. Dan Henderson and Cody Stamen, UFC and MMA fighters. Had a great time in California. And today's no different. Got another great guest who joins us again on the podcast. We're going to be talking history, Pacific Flyway history specifically, and really through pictures, through photography, through images. My good friend Yancey Forrest Knowles is back. How are you, Mr. Yancey? It's great to be with you. Never know where these conversations are going to lead, but it's always a lot of fun, and, and I learned something too. I think conversation has become a something of the past also, huh? It is. You know, uh, this whole concept of being able to communicate with people is changing so dramatically, so quickly. You know, we see little taking place in the realm of writing anymore. People chat or they just send a text or an email or something of that nature. But the art of communication has changed rapidly, especially when it comes to face to face. You know, it's easy to send an instant message or a direct message or a text message or an email. Or uh, I was literally just on a phone call before we got on the microphones. And one of the, the comments made by the person I was talking to on the other end of the line was that exactly what you just said is that people have perfected the art of getting out of conversation through texting mm-hmm. or if it's a happy birthday message. Remember, you used to have to dial a phone and say, hey, happy birthday or take the time to write it out in a card. And now a quick text message will suffice. And I've always been like, well, man, that's that's kind of a weak way oh. to get out of important conversations. Or I'm not saying that you have to wish every single person in your phone a happy birthday verbally. You know, you might be closer to some than others, but I think people have really mastered the art of getting out of direct conversing. Like you go into a restaurant at lunch where it used to be the 12 o'clock hour and you'd see five men or five women sitting around chit-chatting, talking about their week or what's coming up, what their family's doing, what Jonathan did on the baseball team or whatever it is. And now everybody's looking down at their phone. It's like they use that hour to catch up on the emails or the text messages or the social media that they miss being at work from nine to noon. You know what I mean? It's crazy to me. Hey, I'm still so old school that I still write thank you notes and you know everything personal make it personal how old are you i'm 80 i told these guys when we drove in i go i think yancey's getting towards 80 and he still hunts almost every day of the season well four or five days a week anyway four or five days yeah, a week yeah. and you hunted this morning I hunted, in the butte hunted sink. this morning hunted yesterday hunting tomorrow you hunted specs oh. yesterday at the rocky you hunted right. in the butte sink today 
Which and I'm going to be in the Sassoon Marsh tomorrow. Which all are, entirely different locations. All different. So the Sassoon Marsh is kind of the kind of the Bay Area, but that's more like Vacaville, Fairfield area. It, it is exactly, you know, and historically important yep. as all these areas are. And that's what we're talking about today. Is you brought to my attention when we were together a week and a half ago or so the awesome place called the wing and barrel, which Darius Anderson hosted us. Darius is a great man. We'll give him a shout out and he's going to come onto the podcast and talk wing and barrel soon. But you mentioned this book and I was like, well, I didn't even know about it. And, and of course our friend Rocky was supposed to give me one for Christmas that you gave him to give to me and I didn't get it. So I'm highly anticipating that, but there is some writing in the book. We're going to get into what you wrote, but is it fair to say that a lot of the writing in the book is to tell the story of that certain image or photograph that you've, we're going to talk about where you collected these images, but the writing is basically explaining what that picture is. Absolutely. You've got it. You've hit the nail on the head. And there's a lot of pictures in here that I know that you did not take the original, right? <laughs> so it seems to me, again, like I have not had a lot of chance. I, I Usually I would go through a book and look at every page and I'm looking at it as we go, but you have gone around what I would say, like, let's picture this being an old historic duck club and rock. And let's say Rocky had a bunch of Larry stuff on here for when Larry started mm-hmm. hunting back in the fifties mm-hmm. and sixties, maybe even black and whites like you have in here. Are you taking pictures of the pictures on the wall? Well, let me, these let duck me tell you, let me kind of take a step back before I answer that. Let me mention also the title of this is specific flyway, historic waterfowling images. And, um, you know, I did this book. I want to mention and give full credit to my partner because I've got a great partner in this book, Dr. Wayne Kaputh, who lives in Memphis, Tennessee. And he's a well-known author of some nine uh, waterfowling books. And I felt so fortunate to be able to develop this partnership with him to do this. And what we did was he brought together his some experience of putting books together. And then I included the images themselves, because about 90% of these images are mine. You know, this is a a 50-year effort, a 55,000-mile effort in collecting these photographs. These photographs came primarily from every major museum, library, private collection, uh, historical society, and news agency in California. So a significant amount of work went into this in collection. And again, as I mentioned, it's about a 50-year collection. Sometimes I found photographs that I was able to, to reproduce by photographing the photographs. But primarily, these are all original photographs. And the thing that makes them so unique is the fact that from 1870 to 1950, there's nothing new. And I would venture to say that 90% of these photographs have never been seen by the waterfowling 90% community. 90% have never been seen. Never been seen by the waterfowling community. Unless they visit one of these museums themselves. Exactly. Or exactly. these lodges. Yeah. Let me ask you a quick question yeah. before we get further into the book. 55 years, 55,000 miles. You're 80 years old. You've been duck hunting for more than 55 this, years. This is my 70th season. 70th season. So you started when you're 10. I'm, yes. I've got the math down. What would you say was your favorite era And I don't want the specifics of who was president or Mm -hmm. what the flyaway was doing, but I'm talking about what was, what age were you when you felt so 
intimate with waterfowling that it was so endearing to you that you knew i know that you got hooked at a young age but like when you're 20 you probably got so much passion and energy that you're just like i want to limit every day and then you mature to the next level well i want to hunt with my dad more and then after that you're in your 40s and you're like well now i might have a kid of my own and i'm introducing somebody new to the sport and then you're in your 50s and you've made some money in your life so now you're like well i get to visit whatever but where would you say in your life was it when you were 40 50 60 70 or now 80 when waterfowling was like the biggest and the best that it could ever be during your lifetime. You know, and interestingly, I go through that transition or that transformation about once every decade. It happens over and over and over. And it's based on changing the areas and places that I hunt in, the people that I hunt with, uh, the different values that I place on what I'm doing, the knowledge that I'm, da- I'm gaining as I'm doing, especially, you know, the historical knowledge has been so very important to me in that, in that growth and evolution. But, uh, you know, I was fortunate. This absolute passion for waterfowling was tapped into when I was so young, I can't even remember. My first memory is walking behind my father in a pheasant field, you know, so I got tapped into real early. But, you know, I think, you know, trying to narrow it down as much as possible. When I was finally old enough to hunt by myself, I think that that's when, you know, the real love of it came. So you loved waterfowling at 16 to 20 years old. You got your own car now. You got your hunting license. You're on your own. You got your own decoys. You've saved up. Your dad might have passed them down to your grandpa. You're saying that waterfowling was as important to you then and was as fun as you had at the club today or in the rice check yesterday morning or even when you were 70 years old. A decade, you were 70. A lot of people don't even keep hunting when they're 70 and you're still doing it at 80. I can name very few people that are still hunting that rigorously at 80 years old whether it's big game or waterfowling but you're telling me that waterfowling the culture the heritage the history that pure passion in your blood was as important at 16 to 20 as it is at 70 to 80 absolutely and you know to take another step on it uh, the whole legacy aspect which to me is you know also being a protector of the marsh and all the wild creatures that live there So it goes in multiple directions, obviously. You know, as I said, you know, you start gaining new insights, new abilities, uh, you know, the interest in developing, you know, gathering photographs and, and putting the history together that go with those photographs. That all evolves. And so each time I get I get go into a new area or meet new people or focus on different aspects of the sport. It's, it's like it's starting all over again. You know, you fall in love with with this passion that we're involved in multiple times. I think that that's very well said that you fall in love with it multiple times. It's yeah. not that it's almost like a relationship. You know, if you're, if you've got a wife and you've yeah. been married for 50, 60 years, you've, you've got to fall in love more than the initial time. You got to continue to feel that and reinvent that love because otherwise waterfowl hunting would kind of, I mean, I love mallards, but if I was going to go out into a cornfield in North Dakota every day over six spinner wings, I'm not going to think that mallard hunting was going to, keep my interest. I love it. I love dry field hunting, uh-huh. but I also want to get in the flooded timber. I want to get on the Missouri river. I want to be on a long boat ride. I want to be on an airboat. I want to be up in the Klamath basin. I want to be up on the Columbia, Columbia river in Washington or the Yellowstone in Montana. That's what's so awesome about waterfowl hunting is that you could be, man, I love it. This season's going to be the best. Uh-huh. And then all of a sudden you get to a place and you're just like, Oh my gosh. I just found a whole new love of waterfowl. And it doesn't even need to be a new species. It doesn't need to be that I'm chasing sea ducks or I'm body booting in the Chesapeake Bay or I'm, or I'm, you know, hunting divers in Alaska or the emperor goose. It could just be, 
wow, I just saw something on the bighorn in Montana and these three mallards pitched in. Uh-huh. Right. Uh-huh. And I'm just like eating up with it again. And I and, fall in love again, just like that. Yeah. And then when you add in do, going to different countries, different continents, to waterfowl hunt with people who have similar passions, but different species and different ways of doing it. I mean, it just grows and grows and grows. And I think that the one thing that I've learned from you over the last five, six years of, of being in your presence is how much knowledge and that you really do have of California and the specific flyway. And I don't, I don't, I don't even need to talk about where I just named, whether it's Willamette or whether it's the Columbia River Basin or the Snake River or coming down the, the I-5 corridor. Let's just talk California specifically. I mean, just the other day we were sitting there and you were telling me about all these duck clubs that used to be right out the door here. If you go down there and you take a left, that was one of the most historic duck clubs. And, and you start to picture, you start to visualize. I've always believed in the art of visualization, whether I was cooking, playing baseball, setting the, the hunt up for the next morning. I visualized the roost and the decoy spread and the hide and the concealment and the, where they're going to approach from and the wind and the temperature and the barometric pressure. I'm, I'm, I'm creating this masterpiece in my mind. I'm always, you know, Ted Williams talked about that in the science of hitting in his baseball book. And chapter four was the art of visualization. And I think that visualization is a very, underestimated power of the human psyche because if you can visualize it you can really get it done but when you start to paint that picture of what california was at one time we had a conversation and you talked about the duck clubs right outside of the city of san francisco one of the most liberal cities in the country one and we don't need to even get into politics but they you go into san francisco now and say that we hunt ducks we kill ducks right outside this right outside where let you guys you just look right over there and you, you see the prison right there do you see where uh What's the prison called? I'm sorry. It's Miss San Quentin. You, you, no, not San Quentin. Uh, San Francisco. The, the yes. one in San Francisco. The one right outside Alcatraz. So oh. you see Alcatraz right out here? People are hunting ducks right off of that island. You see that Bay Bridge? They're hunting ducks. People would never believe you in San Francisco. They don't even think about duck hunting when you're inside the city limits now. But you were telling me at one time that there was so many historic duck clubs around that area that Chinese restaurants and Italian restaurants and immigrants that were living within those cities were relying on duck hunters to bring them their ducks to feed to their customer base and to feed to their families. People that are just getting into duck hunting don't even understand that. I didn't even understand that when you told me. But when I'm in San Francisco now watching the, the Giants play and eating dinner on Caesar Street or, you know, on Bay Street or something, I'm sitting there going, well, Yancey told me that this place used to be full of market duck hunters and they were bringing their bounty in and selling it to these restaurants. How cool is that? That's a part of, that's a part of California history that not many people know about. Well, you know, you and I've talked multiple times about how good the waterfowl hunting is still in California. Big time. And the people that come here for the first time are absolutely amazed. <laughs> you know, with the height of the migration, we still have some six and a half, seven million uh, waterfowl come into the state. You think back, and it wasn't really that long ago, but when Teddy Roosevelt was president in 1908, he proclaimed the Lower Klamath River as the first waterfowl refuge in the nation. There were some 40 million waterfowl coming into California. At the time of uh, this became a state, uh, 1850, we estimate that there were probably about 60 million waterfowl migrating into this state every winter. I mean, can you fathom that? 60 million. As many birds as we see now, and you and I have seen some great flights multiple times in this state, 
Can you imagine if that was multiplied about 10 or 20 times? No. Where would they fit even? Yeah. My God. <laughs> well, it's a great question because back in the day before, I'm sure that this the landscape looked a lot different before rice, before walnuts, mm-hmm. before almonds, before olives. I mean, there there's a lot of farming and agriculture here, but there's been a lot of disruption to probably, you know, with cities and development and all of that. But yeah, you're right. Like 60 million waterfowl at one time when this state became part of the United States of America. I can't picture that because that's more ducks that are in the flyway altogether now. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say that for sure. I don't know how many are in the fly. All the flyways continue, mm-hmm. you know, combined, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but 60 million in just California, you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, uh, we estimate that we probably have at least 25% today, 25% of the birds in all of the Pacific Flyway in California at the height of the migration. It's unfathomable. I mean, all the flyways, you know, still have viable uh, populations in them, but I think by far uh, the Pacific Flyway has the most. Mississippi Flyway is pretty strong, um, but this place, and you know, when we were driving in here, this is Dan's first time in this in this part of the state. I don't know if he's ever been to California. I'm sure he has, but as far as like looking at waterfowl, mm-hmm. and he barely like we went through D10, and then I got him over on 99, and I was expecting to see what I saw two weeks ago. Well. They had just all transitioned a little bit to the west. And I looked out there and you could see the rafts of sprig and the, the a lot of new widgeon in the area and a ton of specks. The amount of waterfowl in this area, and I've always said a lot of a lot of people would fly into the Chesapeake Bay, the eastern shore at one time before the limits got messed up. There's a, his, a big time history of body body booting there and Canada goose hunting, uh-huh. mallard duck hunting, black duck hunting. Stuttgart, Arkansas, people flock in there to the airport in Little Rock or fly privately in there to get to the flooded timber. But you don't hear of a lot of people flying into Sacramento Airport and coming to California to waterfowl hunt. You might get a mule deer tag out here, a sheep tag, a Roosevelt elk tag, or a a Thule elk tag. But as far as the people that really travel to hunt ducks, I'm not saying that nobody comes here. I don't want that to be what, what it sounds like. I'm saying that you would think that with the amount of waterfowl opportunity here, that there'd be a lot more tourism for it. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up. And I want to relate this to the book because one of the most intriguing things about California, and I'm going to, and I'd like to share several of those aspects with you, but certainly one of the most intriguing is the importance of waterfowl clubs in California. And the fact that we've been able to document that over time, we've had about 2,600 waterfowl clubs in California. We have at least a thousand active clubs today, and that's not counting the here today, gone tomorrow rice clubs. I'm talking actual duck clubs in California, defined, listed on the general references, duck clubs. And I just don't think that that tradition is as strong in other states. In addition to that, we don't have that much commercial shooting in California. So there's not that much ability for people to travel into California to waterfowl hunt unless they understand and, you know, they have knowledge of who offers commercial opportunities or they have friends who own or, or belong to clubs. Or if they came out here and took the time to learn the public areas too, right? Yeah. Because there is some access to public land. There is. And, and, and like most places, you know, they're of, of real value and it's, it's, it's tough. not necessarily easy to get into them. You know, it's a lottery system out here. Uh, but, you know, you bring up, you know, the public shooting and so on and so forth. When I talk to younger people, you know, sometimes they'll ask about, hey, were the skies dark when you were young? And, you know, there were times when they were, you know, dark with ducks. 
uh, especially opening weekends or the big storms or things of that nature. But the real difference is that when I was young, you could always find a place to hunt. You know, nobody said no. If it was private, you could walk onto their property. The refuges did not have lotteries at the time. You could pull in on Friday night and you might have seven or eight or 10 cars in front of you, but you definitely would get in and hunt. You know, that doesn't exist now. So you have to know the system. You have to have friends. You have to have some knowledge about how to work into the system in California. But once you do, you got it made. It's a heaven to hunt in. Interesting that you said... um access when you were younger and it brings up a pretty cool point counterpoint to what i've discussed before on the podcast and the tv show is you know you, you heard people that back in the day that was the golden age of waterfowl and that was when the skies were black and and you would you know you see photos like claypool's reservoir in arkansas where you could walk across the mallards and but it's kind of a cool conversation that you said what would be your opinion yancey knowles of what would you rather have would you rather have today's technology in waders that'll keep you dry, insulation, rainproof, windproof, decoys that look just like the birds, spinning wings, swimmers, flags, boats that can get you anywhere, UTVs that can get you anywhere, calls that sound, you know, that can you can get louder on and very realistic for tons of species, specks, Canada geese, lesser Canada's, mallards, widgeon. I mean, it's all been perfected. We have technology has gotten to a new point, you know, in today's world, even in hunting. So you have a kid or a young girl, young boy that you introduced, they got warm waders, warm coat. You could stay drier than our, even your dad or your grandpa could have back in the day. You see these pictures, these black and white pictures, how comfortable were they when they were hunting, really? But would you rather have it like today where you have all this technology or would you rather have better access and more opportunity to hunt, but you had to do it in leather and stuff that wasn't going to keep you warm and you might not get to hunt very long during the day because you were soaking wet? Definitely original style. No question. No question. No question. You know, uh, virtually everybody I know owned an army jacket at some point that they hunted in. You know, and, and you put a box of shells in each pocket and you had your sandwich in there. And on your lanyard, you had a sprig whistle and a mallard call. And that was it, you know, and you went out and you spent the day. And by God, you came back with your birds. And a lot of that reason was because there were a lot less people, of course. When I grew up, there were 12 million people in this state. We have 45 or 50 million people in this Isn't state Isn't that crazy? Today. You know, uh, and the limits, of course, were quite a bit uh, larger. There's no question. About it. When I first started hunting with bonus birds, it was still, you could shoot 10 sprig in a day. When you talk about reminiscing like that, the OG style, back in the day, the army jacket, talk to me about when you sit down to put this book together. By the way, I want to add in that this book has already been very successful. You've sold out both prints already, and you're on your third one that's going to come out. We'll talk to the audience about that and tell them how to get the book when it does come available again. Or you could probably even get on a waiting list. There's a an awesome uh, review by Ramsey Russell out there. There's a great review in California Waterfowl Association magazine out there. But personally, did you shed a tear? Did you smile a lot? Does it make you feel like, man, I'm getting old? When you're looking at all this, what was going through your psyche laying all of this out? Because I know that you probably look at these pictures sometimes as you've gathered them over the mm-hmm. 55 years, but you're busy. You, you're doing business. You're in meetings. You got grandkids. I'm sure you got hunting going on. You're living life. So you're not always looking at your photo collection. So what goes through a man's head that's lived this life? that has been hunting for 70 years. 
Was there different emotions? Did you go up and down on a roller coaster as you put this together? Or was it more like, I just got to be structured and get the chronological order of this right? Or did you get some emotional ties to this as you put it together? I would say, you know, both of them, obviously, because the actual physical act of putting it together takes a lot of thought, a lot of organization, a lot of work. But again, I want to I want to reemphasize that, you know, I have a wonderful partner in this book and he's had experience in self-publishing books in the past. So we drew upon that. We drew upon my image collection, which I know is the largest and best in the Pacific Flyway. And with those two, you know, with his knowledge of putting a book together and uh, my collection, uh, we started this process. The process grew and changed over time. Initially, it was technical. It was getting it organized, getting it done, etc. But as we went along and we began to realize the incredible collection that we have here and that nobody has seen these before and the ability to let people know how important our heritage and our legacy is and, and the incredible number of changes that we've gone through as we've evolved as sportsmen, that was the part that com- you know comes from the heart. When you think about the hunters of back then, this picture right here is unbelievable. Willows, California, which I've been to many times. Right around the corner. Right close to where we're at right now. Look at these geese. Like, <laughs> good freaking night, right? Yeah. Um, do you think it was too much ever? Do you, When you look at a picture like that, do you think that there well, should have been some more laws in play? I'm not saying that well, I know no, how no, many hunters were on no, this. No, you're, you're bringing up a very valid point, though, because – even as early as 1870, when all, you know, we were in the heart of the market hunting, when there was this superabundance of waterfowl and no regulations, no limits, nothing of that nature. We didn't even have the first limit in California till 1900, and it was 50 ducks a day, okay? But the first concept, of the first thought of conservation in California actually happened as a result to people realizing that even in 1870, the number of waterfowl that were coming into the state were starting to decline. Now, decline is a different has a different definition for different people in different eras. But people began to realize as early as 1870 that we didn't have as many ducks as, and geese as we had in 1850, for example, when duck hunting really started in California. So, yes, that has all evolved and it's had effect on certainly had effect on me and made me think about it. But to me, even more interestingly, is the fact that the average person and the waterfowler began to have concerns for conservation as early as 1870. Which would go on to lead into 30 years later. You just talked about President, how he, how, you know, we talk about the Klamath. It's mm-hmm. been in the news a lot mm-hmm. the last 10 years, longer than that, but a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of different ideologies of what's going on in that part of the country and, and what's going on with the Klamath Basin and the oh. refuges up there in Thule and all of that. But, you know, that those sediments that they started to feel when they see pictures like that led into organizations, whether it was DU or whether it was California waterfowl, which is probably the, the strongest regional based waterfowl conservation organization or advocacy organization there is, in my opinion. Without I haven't question. seen any stronger. Without question. NBU in Nevada for big game, Nevada mm-hmm. Bighorns Unlimited is unbelievable with the amount of money they raise, the guzzlers they put on the mountain, the sheep trades mm-hmm. they've done with states to Texas and the wild turkey and, and everything they've done with the sheep population. 
But what CWA has done for conservation in that region of California, mm-hmm. and we've always talked about what happens in California spreads eastward, mm-hmm. the amount of education that I've gained from you and Rock and John and Scott and, and Mark Henley and everybody that I've been in touch with because of CWA, I bet you that, you know, that was kind of like a progression that happened is from 1870 and then a limit of 50 ducks a day in 1900. That wasn't going to work because it still started to climb. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, bigger cities start to come and and bigger, fa- you know, more families are moving in. And then the population of California is going up. And so now, as you start to see the overall number of waterfowl declining, the human heart sets in the heart of a hunter. And that's where conservation was kind of born as far as based in waterfowl ideology. Is that fair to say? Well, yeah. And you know what? We we often in California and now other places, but we often talk about the effects that the drought here, the prolonged drought has had on, on our waterfowl population. But, you know, let's go back to the 1930s and the Dust Bowl. And I know you know about the Dust Bowl. Yep. You know, of course, that was the evolution of Ducks Unlimited and, and other conservation organizations. So we've been through this before and we'll be through it again. And you're absolutely right, though. Here in California, California Waterfowl, and it's influencing a lot of other states, too, is the organization that is keeping us grounded in the importance of conserving what we have, enjoying the hunt. But conserving it as you go along, always, always thinking about how are we going to build more refuges? How are we going to assist more uh, private people in developing their duck clubs? And, you know, the the whole concept of unintended consequences is the thing that bothers me the most about, you know, when we hear about people trying to stop us from hunting, owning our guns and hunting and things of that nature, is they, they really don't understand that there are 400 wetland-dependent species. And the only people who are keeping water on those locations, I shouldn't say only, but primarily by a large scale, is waterfowl hunters. We're the people that are putting the money, the time, uh, the legislative effort into conserving these wetlands and, and, frankly, developing new ones. You know, in California, California's got about 201 million acres in it. And initially, we had about 5 million acres of wetlands. We got down to about three-quarters of a million. And through the work of waterfowl hunters and other conservation organizations and and the federal and state refuges and things of that nature, we built ourselves back up to almost 3 million acres. But without the work, of, of uh, in particular, of waterfowl hunters, it's not going to happen. Where would the species be, all species talked about in waterfowling? And shorebirds, you can align with that. Absolutely. Where would it be without the heart of a hunter, the conservation efforts, the sweat equity, you can go on and on, but where, just in simple layman's terms, Yancey, where would, in your opinion, this is obviously an opinion because you don't have the science behind this, or you might have some facts that you could shed light on right now, but where would it be? Where would that, those numbers that you just said, where would the acreage be? Where would the wetlands be without hunters developing this land? Let's like Paul Bonderson. And there's so many great people mm-hmm. like of his stature that if taking his, the money he's made in his life and putting it into the land, putting it into the ducks, putting it into the geese, the shorebirds, educating new hunters. Where would it be without hunters? It wouldn't be, plain and simple. It wouldn't be. It would get down to the point where you'd have virtually no uh, wetlands, in Cal- certainly in California, uh, because of uh, a variety of things. You know, 85% of our water, uh, interestingly, goes to agriculture. 
we talk about population and, and industry and all the water it takes, but look at all the, you know, agriculture, the most important industry that we have from my perspective, you know, because it produces the food that we need here in California and beyond. I mean, I think California feeds half the world almost. It's amazing what we produce here. But in that process, we use 85% of our water. 85% in agriculture. No. Okay. Hunting wise, let's get into some of these, this book. Um, you know, I, I do want to share a couple of things about this you might find interesting. I want to hear them, but I got one question. You bet. We talk about this state, the waterfowl. My opinion, it's becoming a pretty unbelievable goose state. I saw that picture from Willows from back in the day. It's been a goose state for a long time, but the speckle belly hunting in California is unreal. Tell me about your first time being underneath specks in California. And when you were like, wow, there's a lot of specks that are starting to come to this because you've hunted here a lot longer than I have. And specks have been, specks have been there since I've been coming here. I started coming here, I should say, in about 90, about 2003, 2004, mm -hmm. consistently. Mm -hmm. um, but when did you finally, when, when did you realize like, oh my gosh, look at the amount of specks? Well, a, c a couple of things come to mind. First of all, when I grew up, I never even heard the word speckle belly. I mean, we just never saw them. You know, there were a few around. Obviously, you read about them, you see them in the photographs. But the average hunter did not get to hunt specks 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. There weren't near the numbers that we have today. And uh, I would say probably about the same time as you, probably around 2000, something of that nature. And part of the reason was I started hunting the North Sacramento Valley more frequently then. And, uh, you know, it, it's the main habitat of the speck is this area around here. But it's quite amazing that you can have such a beautiful and such a prolific bird come into the state in the numbers that we have today. I mean, my God, we have a, a 10 bird limit day after day after day. And, you know, I like to say that specks are the new mallards. You know, the, the incredible way that they work and respond to talking to them. And, and of course, you'll never eat a better bird. God, I, I mean, and, and the, uh, there's just something exciting that's so different about speckle bells, even compared to other geese. You know, we don't really hunt honkers very much in California. They're non-migratory anymore. They just hang out, you know, and, uh, and they eat a lot of grass now. So they don't taste like they used to when they were strictly on grains and things of that nature. Uh, you know, we have a lot of, we enjoy snow goose hunting and, and they're very, very prolific and coming through the fog. It's quite amazing seeing these white bodies coming at you, but speckle bellies, let me tell you, there's something magic about hunting them. And it's not an easy bird to learn to call. There are some very sophisticated sounds that you need to be able to train your body to make to hunt those animals. But I'll tell you, once you learn them, and you're in this North Sacramento Valley, you are in for something brand new. And it, is, it is unbelievable. And not to mention, you know, reading those birds, because I yeah. I hear these spec callers and I'm like, I wonder if they're talking to them like I would talk to Canada geese, you know, when I'm calling honkers or lessers or cacklers, I kind of know what I'm doing, you know, like I'm either, I'm usually having a gang fight with them. I'm talking smack to them. So it's kind of like the Michael Jackson beat it video to where you like come face to face with them and you start talking smack and they go away because you scared them. And then all of a sudden you're like, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. So I'm always like, again, visualizing a certain kind of confrontation when I'm, you know, a lot of people would think, well, they're birds of a feather. They flock together. No waterfowl are very stingy bird you know when they're in the air i don't think that those birds on the ground are like enticing them like hey really want you to come down here now 
Now, Hen Mallard could be during, you know, January when it's time to pair up. But again, it's up to you to how you paint that picture of what you say to those birds and how you get the reaction that you want to get out of them. Mm-hmm. And when I'm watching somebody like Riley or Bailey, who, you know, work these, and those are very good spec callers, Bailey, Fritter, and Riley Hall. Aren't they amazing? Amazing. I hunted with them yesterday. I just, you know, something, I'll tell you, I'm going to interject real quick. No, go ahead. You know, you, the, and these are fellows, the fellows that we were talking about are, are guides for Rock Merlot, yeah. Merlot Waterfowl here. And they are professionals. And I'm telling you, sometimes for two reasons. Number one, just listening to the amazing sounds that these fellows can make in total control, how the birds work, and the numbers. Sometimes, I mean, I, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not just trying to pick something out of my hat, but you might have 5,000 specks circling around you, 40, 55, you know, 50 yards above your head around and around and around. And these guys just keep talking to them and keeping them there and bringing them down lower and lower and lower until they start landing in that open hole in the, in the middle of 800 full body decoys. But it's music. It is music listening to these guys like they're playing an instrument. Yeah. You know, they're amazing. It is not the easiest bird to learn to call. There are some very sophisticated. Yeah, I don't understand the vocabulary. There are some very sophisticated sounds. I can get the air pressure right, and I can make some of the sound, not like these guys can. And I've never even really, for lack of better terms, you know, got fitted for the right spec call. We're designing one right now, so I'm learning a little bit more about the guts and and all that. So, But I've never really went to a, a high-end spec caller and been like, hey, help me with this, you know? Because I come here, and it's like... Time to relax a little bit. Like, what am I going to do with a spec call when I'm hunting with the Merlot clan? Like, what am I going to do? Just add a couple notes in there and I'll do it once in a while. But again, being totally transparent, it's for camera. You know, I'm just going like the laughing goose sound, you know, but these guys have an entire vocabulary and dialogue and jargon, if you will. That's why we named our call company jargon, the, the specialized vocabulary amongst a group of people, right? Or what you're speaking to that wild animal to get a bull elk to finish or a wild turkey or a speck or a mm-hmm. can of goose or a mallard. Or a sprig right so i've always had this really deep that's why i'm a waterfowl hunter okay that's plain and simple if it wasn't for the vocalizations and the intimacy of the calling part of it and the finishing aspect of it with that call i wouldn't be a waterfowl hunter mm-hmm. that's what brought me to it i like turkey hunting a little bit but man i i i love waterfowl hunting because of that talking to them and that vocabulary and that dialogue so yeah you're right when you get around guy and then you got rocky throwing in his mouth goose call his snow goose call and and it works i mean you know he gets teased for it rocky i love you like a brother but i've been the first one on the front lines to tease him when he's doing it but it works. It does. And these guys understand these birds in their general vicinity better than anybody. So when I come here, Yancey, I'm not going to be like, Oh, I'm getting my spec call out. You know, it's mainly a couple notes for camera. And I just shut up because these guys are pros and they get them tight. So back to your comment before I ask you that question about specs, because I out we're cooking specs Thursday. If you want to come, we're going to, if you can get back up here, we're doing a whole spec feed on Thursday night. Real trees coming from Georgia. We're going to be filming a documentary Mm -hmm. with them. And part of the documentary is filled to fork. And we're going to do specs on Thursday night. If you Brad uh, Forsyth is going to help me and he has mastered sprig, widget and specs mastered them. Rocky's, got this sauce that we use on the specs that's unreal but if you, you're more I'm welcome telling you, i've had your waterfowl cooked on these triggers and there is nothing like it well you're more than welcome it, it to come to- thursday thank you it totally transforms the taste it does the little smoke on it you get that oh. crispy skin with the reverse yeah. sear all right we have to get to a real quick commercial break and then we'll return with my good friend yancey forrest knowles thank you all very much 
Benelli's The Fowl Life believes that support for conservation organizations is crucial for the health, survival, and future of all wildlife. California waterfowl, which is probably the strongest regional-based waterfowl conservation organization or advocacy organization there is, in my opinion. California waterfowl is the organization that is keeping us grounded in the importance of conserving what we have, enjoying the hunt. California waterfowl is constantly working toward a thriving California with abundant waterfowl populations, vibrant wetland ecosystems, and respected hunting communities. Join the cause at calwaterfowl.org and Chad and Yancey will return in a moment, so don't go anywhere. It's called Benelli's The Fowl Life for a reason. We love Benelli. They are the top shelf of waterfowl shotguns, all shotguns for that matter in my opinion, but when you start talking about duck blinds, goose blinds, lay down blinds, panel blinds, pit blinds, the debris, the wear and tear, everything that we put our guns through throughout a duck season, whether it's a 60 day duck season in the south or you start up north and north of the border in Canada, Alberta, Saskatchewan and follow the migration south. Some of us, myself included, hunt over 120 days a year and every single time I squeeze that Benelli trigger, it goes bam. I'm so proud and honored to be part of the Benelli family and when it comes to the Super Black Eagle 3 the 12 gauge the 20 gauge the 28 gauge I absolutely love this line of shotguns the inertia every single thing from the rib down to the sight to the choke tube to the constrictions the performance is what it's all about with Benelli the Super Black Eagle series in 12 gauge 20 gauge and 28 gauge whether you get Rob Roberts to build the performance shop or you keep them straight out of the box factory they perform they're simply perfect it's Benelli it's the confidence of shouldering that shotgun and the responsibility of pointing it at a live animal and squeezing that trigger the dispatch humane ethics everything that goes into it Benelli believes in the culture of the duck hunter the goose hunter the turkey hunter the upland hunter so whether you're doing sporting clays whether you're chasing waterfowl chasing upland chasing turkeys Benelli builds a shotgun for you Benelli's the foul life they're 13 seasons as our title sponsor can you imagine this relationship thank you benelli thank you all for supporting benelli and i know it's all of our goal to walk into that sporting good that benelli dealer that store and say let me shoulder that super black eagle and now you can do it in so many gauges the sub gauges included we're fired up good luck this season stay safe out there and shoot straight shoot benelli have you become a member of california waterfowl association cwa check them out at calwaterfowl.org it doesn't matter if you live in kansas or florida new york alberta Arkansas, Iowa, I don't care. Become a member of California Waterfowl Association. They're fighting for hunters' rights every day behind the scene. Their advocacy is second to none. They are an unbelievable force to be reckoned with. And if I told you the work that they're doing right now, you would want to become a member. It can happen to us all. You saw Bill 28 just got signed into law. CWA is still continuously fighting that to get rid of that 11% tax on firearms and ammunition. It's going to spread eastward, I promise. And CWA has been at the forefront of hunters' rights, not just waterfowl hunters, but upland hunters, deer hunters, predator hunters, bear hunters, you name it. They have fought for the rights of so many outdoors men and women across this country, and they continue to do so, and they need our help. Become a life member. Become a yearly member at calwaterfowl.org. Attend a banquet if you're in the area. Hit us up at info at thefowllife.com if you need any questions answered. Put that decal on your truck window, on your trailer. Be a proud member of California Water. 
Waterfowl Association and join the fight. We need it, I promise you. It's CWA. I'm a proud member. Everybody on the Fowl Life crew is. You can see a ton of episodes we film with my good friend Rock Merlo in upstate California representing California Waterfowl Association. If it wasn't for them, I truly don't know what the state of waterfowl hunting and other species would be in the state of California. Let's get involved. Let's become a member. CalWaterfowl.org. Thank you for supporting the California Waterfowl Association. Being in the backyard at camp, being with friends and family, one thing that the pandemic did is it got us back in our backyards. It got us staying home more. And man, we just started doing so many cookouts, so much grilling. And we've been partnered with Traeger Grills for the last decade. And I don't know if you can be more innovative than what this brand has done from the new Timberline XL and the new Flat Rock, the Ironwood 885, all of their pellets, their rubs, their sauces, their glazes, their smash burger kit, you name it. Traeger Grills is awesome. And we use them a ton. I'm sure you've seen it on the Foul Life. You've seen it in our social media. Get creative. Be innovative. Think outside of the box. Wild game, domestic, vegetables, desserts, pizzas. You can do it all on a Traeger grill. And like I mentioned, that Timberline XL with that conduction plate. I'm talking high heat, reverse sear steaks. Anything you want to put on there gets it done in a hurry after you put a little smoke on them on the grill. Transfers right over. So easy. Everything is simplified. You can download the Traeger Grills app. You can find recipes. You can work with pros like Matt Pittman at Meat Church and Chad Ward at Whiskey Bent Barbecue and so many others from across the country to master these recipes. It's simple and that's what Traeger is all about. They did not want your backyard experience to be complex. So when you're thinking of fun and good food and flavor recipes, thinking outside the box, think no further than Traeger Grills. I can't wait to get back in my Traeger Grill. Just cook up something delicious. Thank you all very much. Welcome back to Benelli's The Foul Life with Chad Belding and special guest Yancey Forrest Knowles. What's up, everybody? We're back. As Chad and The Foul Life listeners know, waterfowling is more than a hobby. It's a lifelong lifestyle and passion. You're 80 years old. You've been duck hunting for more than 55 this, years. This is my 70th season. Uh, you know, I was fortunate that this absolute passion for waterfowling was tapped into when I was so young, I can't even remember. You fall in love with this passion that we're involved in multiple times. I think that that's very well said that you fall in love with it multiple times. The Foul Life with Chad Belding is brought to you by brands that support the outdoor way of life. High Vis Sights, Bandit Brands, Oakley Sunglasses, Mickey Thompson Tires, and Avery Outdoors. Now, let's rejoin Chad and Yancey. Talk to me about the book. Let's get into this book. Again, we're already on our third printing right now. Pacific Flyway Historic Waterfowling Images. Yancey Forrest Knowles, and I want to make sure I get his name right, Luther Wayne Kaputh. Correct. I got it. And he's an MD. He's a doctor. I want to tell you something about Wayne to start out with. Wayne lives in Memphis, and he's retired now. But as I said earlier, he's produced nine different waterfowling books. And to tell you the extent of his knowledge, everything, I will tell you unequivocally, he is the authority on the Mississippi Flyway. And this is a series. This book is a series. It's a three-part series. Volume one was about the Mississippi Flyway. Volume two, this particular book, is about the Pacific Flyway. And volume three that just came out is about the Midwest and the Atlantic Flyway. So all four of the flyways have been covered in the three volumes. And every one of them is equally interesting and good. And, you know, they're all volumes that people would want to have in their libraries. But uh, Wayne originally, you remember when um, 
the new Delta, I mean, the uh, Ducks Unlimited Waterfowl Heritage Museum was created in Memphis yeah. Oh, yeah. in the Pyramid. Yep. You remember yeah, that? when Johnny Morris turned it into Yeah, exactly, when yeah. Johnny Morris turned that in. Well, the first, uh, up on the second floor, they had all the waterfowl heritage displays and everything. And 90% of that stuff in there, especially all the duck calls, those were all Wayne Capoose. You know, he's that level of collector and, and having that kind of knowledge. So being able to work with him on this volume two made all the difference in the success of this book. You mentioned earlier, you know, that that it was received well. Uh, the first printing sold out in about two weeks. The second printing about another 10 days. The third printing is taking place right now. It's going to be uh, in my hands at the end of January. But 60 percent of the uh, books are already spoken for. So they'll probably 90 percent of them be gone. And before. you're keeping all this money to buy a new boat. Oh, <laughs> that was a, As a matter. That of, was a question because I already knew the answer to it. Tell people what you're what a lot of these money's going for. Well, I'll, thank you. I appreciate you asking that question. I'm getting my defined uh, expenses covered. Anything that I'm realizing as a profit beyond that is being donated to CWA. Donated to California Absolutely. Waterfront after you've already donated a lot I, of money. Already. I've already I already wrote them a check for the first two. Uh, printings and they'll get another one for the third and you've already been a member of that forever you've sat on the board you you've, forever i was you've, chairman you've done a, you were a chairman of the board you've done a lot of money you've done a lot of work with cw and you continue again going back to what we talked about but did kaputh did dr kaputh do you know if he's worked with discovery park have you heard of discovery park and their new waterfowl exhibit in uh in martin tennessee you need to ask him if you i just had um discovery park on the podcast brought to me by my good friend kelly powers mm-hmm. kelly owns final fly and he's a multi multiple time world champion goose caller 1999 champion and champion or he won the worlds in 99 won the champion and champions in east of maryland in 2000 um and his family's from right there in, in tennessee and um they helped put together this really cool display at this new museum called discovery park and i wonder if if dr kaputh had anything to do with that i'm sure he did being in tennessee like that i'm sure he was consulted in some way does he hunt real foot lake a lot you think you know what? Uh, he did hunt a lot, and I've gone back and I've traveled, you know, learning more about uh, Mississippi in particular, but different parts of uh, Arkansas also yeah. and Missouri from him. But um, he's taken me, you know, for example, to Beaver Dam, Nash Buckingham's famous Love place Dam. that he hunted, uh, the National Field Trial uh, Museum, Hall of Fame, a variety of different Civil War uh, battle sites, you know, yeah. uh, with all the information that goes with it. So he's an amazing, well-versed, well-rounded guy. And, and I'll tell you, anybody that's ever in Memphis, make sure you, you make an effort to get to, to meet Wayne Kaputh because he's, uh, they'll treasure the time with him. He's a very special guy. Uh, but, you know, I had mentioned earlier, uh, that one of the unique things about California that you learn in this book was the importance of waterfowl clubs. And how they've evolved over time and that there are so many of them compared to the other flyways. All flyways have, you know, a good number of waterfowl clubs, but 2,600 in one state, you know, pretty unheard of. Strong. But a couple other really unique things about waterfowl hunting in California that you didn't have other places was we had something called pit hunting. And I don't mean like putting a blind in the ground, you know, like what you call pit blinds and so on and so forth. But actually going out scouting in the afternoon, guides going out and big building or digging individual holes for clients to crawl into the next morning, bringing out the live decoys, 
tethering them uh, the next morning and having these guys crawl in these individual holes and, uh, you know, going ahead and calling these birds in and shooting them from their holes. But you didn't find these pits other places. Sometimes, you know, down the Mississippi River, you might see in, in a sandbar something, you know, dug out for a person. But in general, building pits, you just didn't see it in other cities. Another thing very interesting, and this is really cool, is we have had something in California called bull hunting. And I don't mean going out and trying to find a bull to shoot. I mean using a trained bull to hide behind to work your way in on a huge flock of, of geese. It's like a cow decoy, but a live bull. But bulls. And, and it was prevalent, especially in the area that we called the grasslands. Uh, Los probably, Banos. Yeah, Los Banos, probably two hours south out of drive out of uh, Sacramento. Uh, the, the Lost Ban- By the way, you know, the Los Banos Ecological District right now is still about 250,000 acres with probably over 200 duck clubs in it and still offers an exceptional hunting down there, particularly on teal. But they would use these bulls, the owners, they would train them and use them and they one or two people would walk behind them. And just as a sailboat packs its way across a bay. They would use this bull in the same way. They would tack it back and forth, back and forth, getting closer to flock or going around and around and getting closer each time. And when they finally come within range, they'd lean over the animal's back, fire the first round, killing 100 or more birds on the first shot. And then as they'd rise up, they'd fire the second barrel. Now, these guns themselves were unique because they used primarily uh, four, six and eight gauge, even two gauge. The only thing they ever used a 10 or 12 gauge for was to kill cripples, you know, <laughs> but it was just amazing. Anyways, there's a lot of, a lot of pictures of the bull hunting in here. A uh, lot of writing about it. You know, you get a good sense of the history of how important it was. There were so many geese in this state originally that when the Spanish came in here, they would ride into a flock full speed on a horse with a club and were able to get into them before the geese took off and swing the club in the air and catch them as they're getting up. You know, these animals, interesting, they're all, they're all conditioned by the, the, uh, the height of the shots that we're taking at them. Originally, these birds weren't 40, 50, 60, 70 yards in the air like we see today. They were much, much lower. Yeah. So they've become conditioned to it. Big time. Yeah. But you also learn about the different areas, important people in the book. Uh, for example, there's a lot about the clubs and the, and the duck and goose hunting that took place in Southern California. Not many people know this, but Southern California was called the duck hunting capital of the United States at one point. Now there Stuttgart were, calls herself that. Yeah, Even exactly. in the world now. But, you know, as amazing hunting in that area down there uh, as we have anywhere else in this state. Side note, before we get back into California, I'd also like to talk to Dr. Kaputh about you mentioned live decoys. I'd love to have a conversation with him one day about the Peabody Hotel in Memphis, Tennessee. It still happens. I, I, well, I, I happens. A, a funny story, side note that just happened to me. I was in Arkansas in the flooded timber and I had a guest, Mr. Aaron. He's amazing. Um, his family's from Memphis and they're in the liquor business, in the distributor business. Oh. And you met my girlfriend, Anna. Her daughter, Tater, is just eaten up with waterfowling and calling and everything. He's heard her on the phone today. She's like, I'm doing this and I want my own podcast. And she's 10. Well, on her 10th birthday in December, 
we were in, uh, excuse me, into November. It was at the, during the Wings Over the Prairie Festival in Stuttgart. I just happened to say to Mr. Aaron, I said, hey, I want to take her to the Peabody and show her the live ducks. And he's like, oh, watch this. Like kind of, he's like, calls his friend who owns the Peabody or is, you know, one of them and gets her behind the velvet rope. She gets to be the duck master on her birthday and walk the ducks to the elevator out of the fountain, get in the elevator, Yancey, and take them all the way to the top floor and put them to bed. Because then, you know, every morning they bring them down the elevator and put them in the fountain in the lobby. But the whole story about live decoys and the hunters that used to stay on each floor. And I would like to talk to Dr. Kabooth about who were those hunters? What families were behind those hunters? You know, was it Coca-Cola? Was it the J.B. Hunt family? Was it who was it that was really renting those rooms out or had the because every level I heard was a different family. So, you know, history of waterfowling is so neat because now when you go to Memphis, you know, Graceland, Elvis Presley, he's actually from Mississippi, but he's known for Graceland and being in Memphis. You have the barbecue. You have a lot, you know, you have B.B. King and, and Bill Street and a lot of history in Memphis. But the waterfowling history of that part of that I-55 corridor that comes down and you got I-40 that comes across into Memphis out of Stuttgart or out of out of Little Rock in, in Arkansas. Then you have Southeast Missouri and the Boot Hill and you have Western Tennessee and you have all of that, right? Mm-hmm. The heritage down there. Mm-hmm. I want to talk to him about that deal. But when you compare that heritage and then you sit down with somebody like you and you hear about Southern California, well, what is what do people think about when they think Southern California? Rodeo Drive, Hollywood. Los Angeles, the city of lights. You know what I'm talking about? They don't think about duck clubs. I mean, the, you still have, you know, even down like the Salton Sea and areas way in Southern California today, there's still duck hunting going on. You would never imagine that, right? You, you would never think of no. that. No, you wouldn't. You know, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, let me just give you an example. Uh, initially, the only real population in Southern California was what we call, you know, today the LA Basin. But it really was just contiguous to what is downtown L.A. today. So you had all that area between there and the coast, which is, uh, you know, if there was no traffic whatsoever, it's a half hour car drive. No traffic whatsoever. But up until about 1920, nobody lived on the coast. Very few people. The only people that lived on the coast were where there were farms, wheat and barley farms near there. And not only that, but everything, I mean, all the water there all came from artesian wells. You, you put a hole in the ground and it just rushed out. You know, that water table was right towards the top right there. So when just masses of ducks and geese would come down, feeding that wheat and barley, and then go to these areas where these arte- artesian wells had been created. And there were a couple of hundred duck clubs up, you know, throughout uh, Southern California, but mostly on the coast. Now, the reason there was no homes out there or anything, nobody lived on the coast, is they didn't have the transportation to get out there. Cars were just starting. You know, there was one car for, at that time period prior to 1920, there was about one car for every 20 people in the nation. So they had no way to go out there. There was no train that ran out to the coast. So nobody went out there except duck hunters, essentially. And it was just massive, it, you know. And then about 1920 is when the first railroad went out there. And, um, uh, you know, cars started becoming more common for people. And so these duck clubs started closing one after the other. Is there any part of the state of California that did not have 
a rich history of waterfowling? Is, are there certain parts that never? I mean, I guess like even around Bakersfield, when you start getting into the mountainous part of the grapevine yeah. and all of that going down south, there's duck clubs around Bakersfield, right? Oh, there was a massive number of, of clubs down in uh, the, what they call the Tulare Basin. Tulare Basin. Yeah. You know, you have two valleys essentially in California. You've got the Sacramento Valley, which goes from Sacramento essentially to Chico. You know, the, basically the area that we're in here. And then you had the San Joaquin Valley. And the San Joaquin Valley was really divided into half, into two two separate entities, the lower half being the Tulare Basin. By the way, the largest lake outside of, uh, or let's say west of the Mississippi, was in the Tulare Basin. It was Tulare Lake. And it was drained by 1905, again, for agriculture. But you can't imagine, it was twice as large as Lake Tahoe. It was huge. And of course, there was just a plethora of waterfowl that used it. Interestingly... A lot of birds, especially mallards, teal, a gadwall, and unbelievably, most people don't know this, but sprig would stay and do their breeding and have their clutches here in, in California. And the Tulare Basin was one of the biggest places for the sprig. Even today, when Tulare uh, Basin gets reflooded because of, you know, like last year, the prolific rains that we had, Tulare Basin started to fill up again. 50,000 sprigs stayed there and, you know, had their clutches. And, of course, we lost them all uh, once the lake was drained again and, um, you know, because of botulism. But birds would stay and reproduce in California. It was it was quite interesting. Sidebar question for Yancey Knowles before we get back to the book. Driving through the rice country around here, you could walk across Sprig and some a lot of these checks. There's a lot of pintails here. There's talk about the limit maybe even being raised for next year. We can get into that on another podcast. But personally, do you want to be in a under a blue sky, sunshine, pretty cold temperatures, nice little north northeast wind, sun in their eyes? Do you want to be calling it greenheads and finishing them, or whistling at Sprig and finishing them? What do you prefer? Depends where I am. Okay. Depends uh, on the day and where I am. Butte Sink. Butte Sink Mallards, definitely. Butte no Sink question. Mallards. But, you know, uh, Sprig were known, when I grew up, Sprig were known as, as the king of birds in California. I know some of the best clubs in the Butte Sink that took all their trees out at one point because they wanted to become Sprig clubs. And once, you know, the limits changed, and we had to deal with all that, those trees went back in real fast. You heard me make a, a comment in the meeting last week about flying over the Butte Sink and how special that place is when you get up above it. I'm not talking 50,000 feet or 30,000 feet in a commercial aircraft. We were 3,000 feet above the ground in a helicopter looking over the clubs. Pretty amazing. It, Pretty unbelievable habitat. Well, I heard... Uh, an apt phrase used multiple times, and it was the last mallard that'll ever be shot in North America will be shot in the Butte Sink, and I I believe that you know, and thank God it's not going to happen. But you can you can see what it's trying to portray. I mean, you we have unbelievable uh, flooded timber shooting in Arkansas and Southeast Missouri and some other places in the Mississippi Valley, but you know, I'll tell you what, you got damn near the same thing. In the Butte Sink, it's beautiful beyond uh, imagination. Birds love it, and the people that participate in those clubs there are going to make sure that it's protected forever. And I was again going back to conservation. If it's not for the duck hunters and those members of those duck clubs mm-hmm. and the money that's put into that, I don't think it exists. It might have, it might hold some birds, but that habitat is unbelievable because of the amount of work that has been done by 
by waterfowl hunters and California waterfowl and, and agencies like that. Well, and when time allows some other day in the future, I'd love to get to talk to you about the history of the Butte Sink. I think you'd find yeah. it very But you got to take me hunting at every club at least one day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, we'll start with the bearing. We'll go to the Brady. I want to go to the White Mallard. Yeah. Wild Goose. You can get me into well, all I'm, those. Well, you know, I'll, I'll tell you what, and, and I'll just tell a little story on myself. Uh, I'm trying to, you know, hopefully we'll have the opportunity to hunt every single club in the Butte Sink. And I've done about 80% of them. So I have, a, you know, I have another six or seven clubs I need to need to have an experience in. But uh, I've been to over 200 clubs in California. And so I have a sense of what they're like. Matter of fact, I'm just going to put this quick little plug in. I'm already got the conceptualization for my next book. It's going to be another image book, but it's going to be on Duck Club Clubhouses. That'll be cool. I think most people have never seen a duck clubhouse or more than one or two duck clubhouses. And they have, you know, there's some really unique boat houses that go with them and cleaning rooms and, and blinds, of course, and a variety of other things that I think people will find interesting. Big time. There's nothing better than duck camp. I've said it so many times. Yeah. Duck camp America is better than Paris, better than Rome. Better than the BVIs. Like, I love all that. I love the beach. But there's something magical about duck camp. Yeah, man. There's truly something special. Absolutely. Well, and that's an interesting term because we don't use that term in California. You use duck clubs. Duck club. Duck yeah, club. I go to duck camp. You're in a club. <laughs> and uh, and you know what? The whole concept of what a duck club is has changed dramatically uh, over time. Initially, you know, of course, it was subsistence hunting here and then the market hunting. And then, uh, you know, people were getting guided and and so on and so forth. And then eventually people started getting patents on land and, and developing these duck clubs. But additionally, a duck club in California really meant a group of primarily men, you know, men getting together and going somewhere for two weeks, maybe by wagon or something and setting up, setting their tent up or, or staying on a, a sloop of some sort and some marsh. And, and that became their duck club for that particular period of time. And they might only go once a year, but it was for an extended time. They called it a duck club. And then as more leisure time became available, as transportation became available, as, as people started being a little bit more affluent and could afford to go away and do these things, then a physical spot became a duck club. In this book, are there any celebrity sightings, presidential, political. Is is Ronald Reagan in here, Clint Eastwood, um, Charlton Heston? Or do you go to any of these duck clubs and, and see people you recognize from the media, TV, politics at all that were that kind of had to keep it on the down low that they really liked to harvest animals? You know what? Up until probably 1970, every single quote unquote movie star there was, was a hunter. And they all you know, really prolific hunters. And all either joined or went as guests to duck clubs. You name the famous old movie stars, and and they hunted. John Wayne, absolutely, absolutely. Lee Martin, uh, yes. You know, all of these guys were hunters, and I mean Bing Crosby, just a singer, right? Was an incredible hunter. I like Bing Crosby and uh, uh, Clark Gable. I mean Andy Devine. Wonder when it became taboo or became bad to be a hunter. Because now Hollywood would never admit that they hunt. Yeah, there's very, and there still are some people in Hollywood that we we both know. Who, Wonder when it became hunt, bad to be a hunter. I don't know why, but I don't get it. I because don't get it either. I would think that if you could hone a skill set to provide food for your family, mm -hmm. it just makes sense. But I guess people don't know where hamburgers come from. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, another interesting aspect of that is that every single governor 
except the governor that we have now. Every single governor prior to that has been a duck hunter. And his family's very prolific hunters. Oh, yeah. You know, the Browns. Yeah. You know, uh, both Jerry Brown and Pat Brown, his father. I could tell you stories They're both all duck night hunters. long about Pat Brown hunting in the Delta at specific clubs. Pat Brown's one of his closest friends was Baron Hilton, of course, who developed, you know, owned and developed Venice Island, which is still a fabulous place to hunt. You wouldn't believe this clubhouse. I mean, the memorabilia from Clark Gable and other famous uh, generals uh, that, you know, have fought in all the wars and everything, all their stuff is still in there. It's just beautiful to see. It's, it's displayed beautifully. And so, yes, a lot of movie stars, a lot of governors, a lot of important people. Because we are in the state of movie stars. Huh? We are in the state of movie stars. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is where Hollywood is. Absolutely. California. <laughs> California is, if you really do get down to the nitty gritty, and I know that Florida and Louisiana are a lot of times defined as the sportsman's paradise, but if you really take in the offshore fishing, the inland fishing, the hunting here, the outdoor recreation, California is tough to beat for all around hunting opportunity. I mean, okay, take the word opportunity out of there. But if you really look at the amount of hunting that is here, the amount of game that is here, I mean, I can name a lot of different species when it's big game or predator, mm. turkeys. You you wouldn't believe the turkey hunting here. You wouldn't believe the wild boar hunting here. Was there wild pheasant hunting here at one time? Oh, it was yeah, this sac this area of the Sacramento Valley right here. Because I was told was today, I'm not interrupting amazing. you. I was told today by somebody that we both know that they saw two wild pheasants just south of here, ten miles where yeah. we sit right now. The hunting are there still wild pheasants around? There are not many, but there are, and there's a variety of reasons for that. And you know, some of it's about pollution, some of it's clean farming, uh, you know, increased population of you know, an industrialization coming in and taking away habitat. And it goes on and on and on. But as a young man, we raised sugar beets in this field, in this uh, in this state. And the sugar beet fields were some of the best pheasant hunting imaginable. You couldn't walk down a row of sugar beets without kicking pheasants up. You know, they came, of course, the, the first pheasants came in 1879 from China, from China to Oregon. And then eventually they spread out and go and went into all the different states and everything. But California up to about I would say 20 years ago, 25 years ago, had phenomenal pheasant hunting. Really? And we're all dismayed and shake our heads. We just can't believe that, you know, we have so few pheasants in California anymore. But it was fabulous hunting at one time. Why can you not hunt tundra swan in California? I know that there's certain states that allow it. Nevada, right next door being one of them. Carolinas, North Dakota. There's a few others I'm missing, I'm sure. Utah. Um, I don't know if Oregon can, can, or I don't know if Oregon, no, Oregon can't, I don't know. So no. why, I mean, you know more about that than I do with the amount of them here. Would it not make sense to harvest some of them to keep the, the population? Yeah, in check? because I mean, you go into certain areas and the water is literally white with them. Yes. You know, you, I mean, the ducks won't go in there. They can't get in there. There's no space for them. And you know, it's a, it's, it's a public thing. It's the general public doesn't understand uh, the value of conservation hunting and, of course, the good uh, natural food that you can obtain that way. But um, there's there's a strong anti-hunting you know aspect of that or just simply not understanding, not understanding. that uh, they could play an important role in keeping people active. and Kind of like sandhill cranes in a lot of yeah. areas. There's yeah. a lot of conversation. 
the cover photo, I have some, I live kind of close to where those were found. Nice. Those are the Lovelock Cave they canvas back Thule decoys. Indeed. The story behind these and how they were found was pretty awesome. Yes, indeed. Have you ever hunted the the Humboldt Sink in the in Toulon area there in in Lovelock, Nevada? You know, I haven't hunted it, but I know the his, some of the history of it. And every time I go through, and I go through frequently, you know, I'm always looking. I'm always looking. I'm always thinking. I'm trying. I'm, I'm imaging what the hunting was like there. So where I'm going with that, Yancey Knowles, is in a book about. The Pacific Flyway, this is not just California, though. No, When they picked this book up, because the picture on the front is from Nevada. Yes. Unless this was taken at a California duck hunt, but those are Nevada decoys. Those are definitely. As a matter of fact, those birds, the dozen, 11, actually, 11 11 birds that were found, uh, and and they're estimated to be from carbon dating about over 2,000, maybe 2,200 years old. Those birds are in the uh, Smithsonian Museum, and- you know, of course, I had to get permission to use those, but uh, I just thought they epitomized. They do. You know, if you're going to talk about history, you know, I just want to make sure ones. that the listeners know that this book is it's awesome, and I can't wait to get more into it. Rocky, that's a hint. Um, <laughs> it's the Pacific Flyway. It is. There are eight states, uh, photographs from eight different states, and history about those photographs in there. I'd say um, well over three quarters of the images are from California and the rest are from other states. Makes sense. Take a second and open it up to the index there. Read the states that are included in there, if you will. California, Oregon, Washington, Utah, Colorado, Nevada, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, Alaska, and Canada. Right. So it's more than eight. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, including Alaska. Canada. And then Canada's 11. Yeah. So it'd be a cool count to know how many duck clubs are in those. I can think of two duck clubs in Nevada, the six pack and the canvas pack. I know there's more, but you know, it's 2,600 duck clubs in the state of California. Over and time. like, and like and over time. And they're not just, you know, here today, gone tomorrow clubs. Is that when you said that earlier, does that mean like these parking lots you see with camper trailers that people have a cookout the night before and they stay there for duck season? That's yeah. not the kind of club you're talking about. Actual drive in fenced in area, Dwelling ownership, you know, uh, ownerships and, and yeah. ownership by the members, Absolutely. all that. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so those are bona fide duck clubs. Um, give give us a rundown as we come to an end of our conversation. We need to talk again, either after this season. Uh, maybe we'll meet at the Wing and Barrel for mm-hmm. a uh, cocktail and mm-hmm. to go over it after I have a chance to read it. Another hint for Rock Merlot to get me my dang book. But just give me some highlights. What like look at this picture? Look at how they're dressed. Yeah. Look at that. That's and, not and, even close to how we dress today when we're duck hunting. Yeah, and you know what? You can look at the clothing. Oh, those are women right here. Look yeah. at that. Do you know? Yeah, there were three all women clubs in California. All at one women. Point. And a league up, of their own. Up, up until about oh god, maybe nineteen forty. Women hunted frequently. And, Would you please you know, where they this. were invited. Look at that. Now that, you know what that is? Look at that's that freaking the, picture. That's the Raisin Duck Club. Down, you talked about Bakersfield. It's it's in that general area down there. And and look at all that. You know what those birds are on that fence? I don't I know you could read it and see. I'm going to tell you. Read it. I'm, I'm going to tell you what they were. Those are coots. I was going to say those hundred regular ducks. Those, those are skinned out? Those are, those are coots. Are they skinned out? They had a famous hunt once a year. Where they would uh, go out and and I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that's a lot of coots. Cajuns would love that in Louisiana. They put that in their gumbo. But all women clubs you were talking about. There was three all women clubs. Yeah, Yeah. but women were readily invited to come to duck clubs up to a certain point, and and nicely we're seeing that take place again. But uh, there was there was a long, a very long period of time where 
it was it was forbidden to bring women to duck clubs. Oh, come that's on. Not, that, that, sounds like a, that sounds like a golf club in Georgia. <laughs> well, it may be very well like that in, in that respect. But nicely, you know, you can go to any duck, virtually any duck club today. When you're in the beach sink, do they bring their wives and their girlfriends and, and, and their daughters to – Duck camp or women? Uh, or is it pre- is it pretty common to see women in the busing? I don't think I've ever seen one. Well, uh, I would Hunting. say I would say this that there are probably specific dates specific that, dates. that wives or, or families are invited that they're invited. Yeah, yeah. I or, love. Or I'm gonna I, without mentioning the name or anything. I know there's one very famous club where there is a club house where everybody you know has their meals their joint meals and they do their drawing for which who's going to shoot what blind the next day, etc. But in addition to that, each member had their own private building that they, you know, that they owned and, and that they stayed in when they were there. And, uh, uh, yeah, wives are definitely invited and, 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 you know, they, they can come and stay anytime they want with their husbands, but only once a month, for example, are they invited into the, the clubhouse proper where all the meals take place and so on. I will say this in an age of where we're so mesmerized and have so much gratification or we're magnetized towards photography in a way to where you can, you know, you go to Facebook or you go to Instagram and you upload your photo and you try to get as many likes on it and you set up all of your pictures with your duck strap or your pile picks or you get creative around a limb of a tree or barnwood in Kansas and you go, I'm going to get pictures. I want people to know that we didn't invent this. I'm looking at pictures from the 1800s that would make us look like we have no clue what we're doing when it comes to duck hunting. These guys were getting after it. These girls were getting after it and we're nothing special. We got to quit this infighting. We got to stop thinking that we're doing stuff in duck hunting and goose hunting that's never been done before. I don't care how good of a mallard caller you are. I don't care how good of a goose caller you are. I don't care how many decoys you carve. We are not doing anything that hasn't been done before. Mm. We have to give praise and thanks and show appreciation to the trailblazers and that's what is so awesome about a book like this the pacific flyway historic waterfowl images again by dr caput in memphis tennessee and yancey knowles out here in california who actually lives makes his living in the pacific flyway and is hunted like he just said 200 duck clubs in the state of california maybe in the Pacific flyway or is that the state of California in California, in California, this book will blow your mind to know that these individuals in the 1800s were doing what we do now, ending the hunt. Let's get to the cafe. Let's go clean these birds. Let's go take a nap. Let's go have a cocktail. No, they were actually taking time to stage pictures all the way over a century ago. So keep that in mind that we're not doing anything different. Use it for what it is. Enjoy it. Create your own memories. Create your own legacy through your photography. Take your time. Set it up right. These guys were taking Model T Fords and stringing what looks to be a clothesline to make sure that all of their ducks are seen that they harvested that day. Some of them have smiles on their faces. Some of them don't. But they were celebrating the hunt that long ago. Isn't it interesting how many of these photographs show the birds being displayed in either a horse-drawn wagon or across a Model T? Across the Model T. Yeah. Look at this wagon. Horses with birds. Yeah. Killer. That, that's, that's These are way cooler than the pictures we take You know, this is a Calusa plane right here. Look at those pictures. Yeah. You it's know? way cooler than the pictures we take today. These guys were creative. I mean, they got horse drawn. This looks like a Budweiser wagon with the Clydesdales on it full of geese. Like, that's pretty cool. 
That's like going to Millionaire's Row. You ever heard of Millionaire's Row outside of St. Louis where the bushes and yeah. Augusta, all of them have all their duck clubs? That's a cool area of duck clubs. You might get Dr. Kaputh to do a little history on that. He probably already has. Yeah. Millionaire's Row. Yeah. That's a really cool duck club area. But yeah, we're not, we're not doing anything special, guys and girls, as waterfowl hunters today. Enjoy it. Understand that it doesn't get to last forever. And we got to keep conservation in mind. Keep supporting California waterfowl, Ducks Unlimited, Delta. Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Mule Deer Foundation, Nevada Bighorns Unlimited, Quail Unlimited, Pheasants Forever. There's a lot of them. But put your money where your mouth is because we are blessed to be duck and goose hunters. And having this book that Yancey and Dr. Kaputh have put together brings me to a state of mind of like, man, I hope somebody someday 100 years from now is looking at the pictures that we're taking now. And they're in a book like this and not just on some app that really doesn't give a rat's you know what if you put your hunting pictures up there or not. Keep that in mind. Create your own legacy. And this book is so awesome. How can they get it? Are you got something? You well, I was going to mention that. I'm going to give you my phone number and my email. Personal e- phone I'm, number? I'm going to give it to you. Are you sure? Well, I don't know if you want that. Let me let me give you my email at least. Email. We could do I, no, email. I've always, I've always we could put a We could put a, a little thing on our website at thefowllife.com. We can put the book of where a link to where they can go get it. Yes. We can absolutely. do that. Absolutely. And, and you can only get it from me. Can only get it I'm not. Me. I'm not. De- and the money selling is going through. to buy two new Harley Davidsons and a new duck no, <laughs> I'm not selling it through Amazon or anything else. Uh, this they're going to have book. to contact me to get it if anybody's interested. But again, sixty uh, percent of the third printing are spoken for already. If somebody has an interest in it, uh, please contact me at Y Knowles, the letter Y Knowles, K N O W L E S at Prodigy dot net. Be happy to love to have a conversation. You better with spell you. prodigy for my audience. P R O D I G Y, <laughs> and I'd love to have a conversation with you. Even if if you decide you don't want a book, let's just talk about. You know what else that. be cool if you if you have a picture that Yancey might want to see, email him that 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 image. He might use it in his next book. I'm telling you, if you got a picture of your grandpa's duck club or a family duck club or or, or something that's happened in the Pacific Flyway, send it to Yancey and tell him a little bit about it because I'm going to go through this book with a fine tooth comb and a magnifying glass because it's just awesome to know. I mean, I've spent so many hours looking at photos on duck club walls, but I've never thought to take a picture of those pictures or to put a book together. This is awesome. The Pacific Flyaway Historic Waterfowling Images by Yancey, Forrest Knowles, and Luther Wayne Kaputh, MD. This is volume two of their efforts, and they're already on the third printing of this Pacific Flyaway book. So get it. Why Knowles? Why? K-N-O-W-L-E-S at Prodigy, P-R-O-D-I-G-Y. Dot com. Dot net. Dot, dot net. I would have messed it up. Prodigy.net. Tell your story to Yancey. Talk to him a little bit. He might even give you his phone number. You can have a conversation. But I'm telling you, this book is worth it. What is MSRP on this? What are we this looking is, at? This is $86.50. $86.50. And that includes the shipping. And that includes the shipping. And you'll personalize it for them if they ask. Every single one. Every single one. You will get Yancey to write you a little note. He's a pretty good artist, too. Ask him to draw you one of his stick figure ducks. He does a great mallard stick figure <laughs> coming into the decoys. For Yancey Knowles, Chad Belly, any closing words, my friend? Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Heck, yeah. I love having you on. Can't wait to hunt with you again. And I'm serious about dinner Thursday. It's going to be lights out if you can get back in the area. Thank you so much. And we get to hang out with The Rock. Yeah, The, the Merlot. <laughs> the Rock Merlot. That's Yancey Knowles. A great historian, and this book speaks for itself. Get it. 
Y Knowles at prodigy.net, Chad Belding, Yancey, the Fowl Eye Podcast. Thank you all for the downloads. Thank you all for the subscriptions. And we got a lot of great guests coming up. Be safe out there. Make sure you have compassion for the animals we pursue, respect for the resource, get somebody new involved in the outdoors, male or female, young or old. We're very blessed to be able to hunt. And like my uncle, Ted Nugent tells me all the time on this podcast, it is our right to hunt, but it's also a privilege, but it's our right. But we got to fly the flag in the right light because like my other good friend, Mr. Remy Warren tells me it will be a hunter that could get this privilege revoked someday if we're not careful. So fly the flag right. Make sure that we take care of these animals, have compassion for them and get somebody new involved. For Yancey again, I'm Chad. Thank you for listening to the Fowl Life Podcast. Wonder when it became taboo or became bad to be a hunter. Before there was Stuttgart, there was SoCal. And before the 70s, it was hip to be a hunter. What do people think about when they think Southern California? Rodeo Drive, Hollywood, Los Angeles, the City of Lights. You know what I'm talking about? They don't think about duck clubs. Up until probably 1970, every single quote-unquote movie star there was was a hunter. You know, really? Prolific hunters. And all either joined or went as guests to duck clubs. You name the famous old movie stars and, and they hunted. John Wayne? Absolutely. I mean, Bing Crosby, just a singer. Clark Gable. The Foul Life with Chad Belding is proudly presented by Benelli, the provider, Federal Premium Black Cloud, Corning Ford, and Lear Toppers. Keep it tuned right here to The Foul Life because Chad and Yancey will return after the break. The Answer 12. It's our new Foul Life edition safe. Gun storage system from our friends at Secure It. Brand new design, so much room, so much organization, so much potential, so many options. You can see videos on our YouTube, on episodes of Benelli's The Foul Life, airing exclusively on the Outdoor Channel. We do everything with our Secure It Answer 12 Foul Life Edition safe. Check them out at secureit.com right now and design your own. Get the cubbies, get the shelves, get the bungees, get the magnetic hanging hooks. You got plenty of room for 12 long guns in there and the organization that you can do with everything from knives to binos to dog training equipment to sporting clay equipment to eyewear ear protection all of your chokes all of your sights everything that you want you can organize it for different times of the year it might be dog training season it might be sporting clay season it might be duck season it might be turkey season organize it it is a safe built for the shot gunner my friends tom chris everybody in new york at secure it helped me design this safe our crew went to work on it and we have come up with a configuration that will allow you to make it your own comes with the magnet set with the foul life with lab and ducks and flocks working geese working ducks the foul life edition secure it answer 12 safe is available right now at secureit.com check us out this coming february at the national wild turkey federation convention in nashville tennessee we will have more of them on site on display like we did last year in our booth it's going to be magnificent i hope you get a chance to get your hands on your own organize it the way that you see fit and when you open those doors and see what you've created it's going to give you even more energy even more aura even more enthusiasm for this unbelievable lifestyle that we get to live as an American shotgunner, American duck hunter, turkey hunter, upland hunter, dog trainer. Let's do it. Get the Answer 12 Foul Life Edition right now at secureit.com. You can't go wrong with it. Thank you so much, Secure It. And thank you all so much for supporting the brands that support us here at the Foul Life Podcast and the Foul Life TV. 
You've heard us talking about how much we travel. Our trailers, our trucks, Corning Ford, Mickey Thompson tires, bodyguard bumpers. We have a leer on every one of our rigs. F-150s, F-250s, F-350s. There's some other trucks out there by other manufacturers. We don't mention those. We believe in Ford and we believe in Lear. We believe in security, protection from the elements, the rain, the snow, the hail, security for our dogs, our kennels anchored down in our truck bed covered by the Lear, windows open for breathability and oxygen and air. We believe in making sure when we stop at a hotel or a lodge that that Lear is locked, side windows that can pop up and for easy access, the back window, the tailgate down, everything is locked. There's so many different levels of security with your Lear. It's all prompted by your door locks and the electrical system in your trucks. You can unlock the door so easy. You can lock the door so easy. They come with backup keys to make sure that your side windows are locked, that your tailgate window and door hatch is locked. And then the Lear locker, we haven't even mentioned that. Push both buttons in, slide it down, tailgate has to be up and we have another form of security for firearms for ammunition for valuables it protects our camera gear as we travel america and that lear logo is kind of like being part of a harley davidson clan you see so many more leers on the road once you have it on your truck and it's like a brotherhood a sisterhood i don't care if you're man woman boy girl i don't care if you just got your driver's license your hunting license there's so much pride in that lear brand capital l capital e capital e capital r lear toppers check them out we are so proud and honored to be partnered with Lear and we never ever take a trip without making sure that our trucks are loaded down and protected full security by Lear Toppers. I'm Chad Belding, the host of the Foul Life TV and the Foul Life Podcast. Thank you so much for supporting the brands that support us. Thank you for having a Lear on your next truck. We cook a lot and we like our wild game to be legit. Our recipes mean a lot to us, out of the box, unorthodox thinking, that provider mentality. We eat what we harvest. We eat what we catch. I love the organic lifestyle and nutrition and diet. We eat wild game seven days a week in one meal, sometimes two and three meals. My daughter, Alyssa, loves eating wild game. My nephew, Chase, all of our family has grown up and still lives on the value of sustainability. And Napa Valley olive oil is there for us. The Particelli family are hunters. They're fishermen, they're outdoorsmen, they're gatherers, they're providers. They are old Italian heritage that loves the outdoors. And this product, Napa Valley Olive Oil, located in the wine country of Napa, it's an amazing place. The store is amazing. The salamis, the cheeses, the fresh Italian meats, the sodas, the pastas, all of the different anchovies, everything that you need to do to be a complete outdoor chef. And even if you're cooking domestically, Napa Valley Olive Oil is bottled, old school style. The brand is amazing. The flavor is amazing. The culture of Napa Valley Olive Oil, the friendship we have with Ray Ray and Dante and Jules and Stefano and the entire family, the entire Particelli clan means the world to us. Get online, NapaValleyOliveOil.com and order the different flavored oils, the garlic, the lemon, you name it. They have it. It's Napa Valley Olive Oil. We're proud to have them in all of our recipes at The Foul Life, The Foul Life TV on the Outdoor Channel and The Provider Life. Look for more recipes at TheProviderLife.com. Get yourself a provider cookbook. Napa Valley Olive Oil is all over it. Thank you to the Particelli family and thank you all for supporting the brands that support us. That does it. Benelli's The Foul Life with Chad Belding wraps another fascinating broadcast. For Yancey Knowles, Chad Belding, any closing words, my friend? Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Heck yeah, I love having you on. Make sure you have compassion for the animals we pursue, respect for the resource, get somebody new involved in the outdoors. We're very blessed to be able to hunt. Thank you for listening to The Foul Life Podcast. Catch every broadcast of Benelli's The Foul Life with Chad Belding on SoundCloud, iHeart, Spotify, and thefowllife.com. Thanks for listening and for supporting conservation. We'll see you next time.